Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with our awesome sponsors, Najahi Events. More about them later. In today's episode of the podcast, let's get to the point quickly. 60 million people saw her co-star in a Netflix series that blew our minds. Let me give you some background. She's the founder and CEO of Big Cat Rescue. Maybe there's a clue there. It's one of the largest accredited sanctuaries in the world dedicated to abused and abandoned big cats. The sanctuary began rescuing exotic cats in November 1992. They're home to about 50 lions, tigers, bobcats, cougars and other species, most of whom have been abandoned, abused, orphaned, safe from being turned into fur coats or retired from performing acts. Her interest in saving cats began when she was just nine years old, but she decided against pursuing a career in veterinary medicine after she learned that veterinarians, God, that's a long old word that we're using there, vets, euthanize animals. At the age of 17, she worked at a Tampa department store. To make money, she began breeding show cats. She also began rescuing bobcats and using llamas for a lawn trimming business. In January 1991, she married a second husband and joined his real estate business. She now manages 100-plus volunteers and interns from around the world and 10 staff and contractors. She has run this Tampa-based non-profit since day one and has garnered international attention to the plight of captive big cats on CNN, Animal Planet, Discovery, People Magazine, The Today Show, Netflix, and many more national and international programs. Through her company, Big Cat Rescue, she's lobbied Congress to ban the private trade and ownership of exotic cats. Ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a good one. It's the incredible star of the TV show, Tiger King, Carol Baskin. Well, I am super excited, super, super excited to have you on the show. Carol Baskin, thank you so much for taking the time and coming to join us on the podcast this afternoon. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens in Dubai. <laughs> hey, you know what? There's, there's, there, this TV show that came out took the world by storm and you were, you were made famous in, in our eyes overnight. And after watching the whole TV show, the one question that I kind of had was, why, why did you do it? We worked with the producers for five years because they said what they were working on was a film called Stolen Wildlife and that it would be the equivalent of Blackfish for big cats. Did you see Blackfish? No, I didn't know. It was a documentary where they interviewed all of these people who worked for SeaWorld and for these aquariums that kept orcas and dolphins. And all of these people came forward saying how it was so horrible for the animals. They shouldn't be kept this way, how the animals were abused and neglected. And it entirely changed that entire industry. And so when we were told we were working on something that would end the, the practice of keeping big cats in cages and using their cubs for photo ops, we were all on board. I mean, every time they called us, we'd have them out to the sanctuary and they kept coming back again and again and again. And, you know, of course, they asked me questions about Joe Exotic. But when I asked them why they were asking, they said, well, you know, you go after all of these people that are exploiting animals and they say these things about you. So we just want your side of it. And we were shocked when we sat down like everybody else did and binge watched it because all of the trailers for it we're talking about Tiger King and Joe Exotic, and they had told us he would be like, you know, a five-minute section of this bigger picture that would end the abuse. And so we just felt horribly betrayed by them. 
we we saw a documentary about him by an English producer called Louis Theroux that was on some years before. And Louis is is uh, he's a great investigative journalist. He has done some amazing shows and 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 highlighted many things in a in a very open and honest way. And he has this kind of non-verbal communication where he kind of looks at the surroundings and, and, and the environment and then back at the camera and his, his face is telling a thousand stories about how strange or how weird it is. Maybe you, uh, Scientology was one of them that, that was very well known, but also there was a guy uh, called Jimmy Savile here in, uh, or over in the UK and he was very famous for doing a lot of charity work and then it was found out in the end that he was a paedophile. But, you know, and, and nobody knew, nobody knew. But Louis Theroux was like, this was very obvious, you know, this kind of stuff was obvious. And I think that he highlighted how strange it was to us British viewers. And that he someone did that like, back in 2011. He was so far yeah. ahead of everybody else on this. Okay, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. So when, when, when we see stuff like that, the, the kind of one of the things that comes to our mind is, how on earth are there so many lions and tigers in captivity in a country how, how does that who's interested that much and is it that much of a pull for the public to want to pet these animals that it, it means that there is so much need for these animals to be kept in captivity you know i think it goes back to celebrities on the late night talk shows so like you would have jack Hanna or Steve Irwin, or these different people would take wild animals onto Johnny Carson and all of these different late night talk shows. And people would see that person handling a cute little cuddly cub, and they would think, I want to do that too. And so it spawned this huge demand for people to have their picture made showing how they had this special bond with an animal because they were posing holding this cub. And it it created this huge flood of people that realized because in the U.S. there was hardly any regulation involving lions or tigers or any other big cats, that it was easy for them to get their hands on these cubs. It also came at a time when the white tiger was uh, being portrayed by Siegfried and Roy, who, as you know, probably they just both recently passed in the last year. And they were portraying the white tiger as being some special... Um, subspecies of tiger, which it was not. The only way you get white tigers is through constantly inbreeding the cats, and you end up with a lot more golden cats than white. And so those cats were being discarded off into private hands. So now you had all these backyard breeders breeding all these cubs, and the way they could support feeding them, because it costs us $10,000 per cat per year just for food and vet care, not any of the overhead of the sanctuary. So the way that they would fund their operations is by charging people $20 a pop to have their picture made with a cute cub. And the more people who did that, and when social media came along and more people saw that, then more people wanted that. And it created these huge tiger mills all across America and South Africa primarily that were just pumping out constant flows of tiger cubs and lion cubs and liger cubs to meet that demand. And because of the fact that there was no, virtually no tracking of the animals, then they would just up and disappear when they got to be about 12 to 16 weeks old. Some of them would end up as pets. And people for many years thought that having big tigers, having tigers as pets was the problem. It was just the offshoot of the big problem, which was the cub handling and people posing with the cats. But you know, 
as soon as somebody had a, a pet tiger, you, they'd usually get it at about 16 weeks. They could handle it until it was about a year and a half old. And then all of a sudden they're on the phone, get this out of my house or out of my backyard. And so it was never like any of those people kept their cats for any length of time. But it's just, it's created this unregulated trade. And the biggest problem, why everybody should care about this, is because when you have all of those tigers ending up untracked, a lot of them will end up in the black market for their parts. And if you expand that market for their parts, it creates a legal smokescreen. If I get caught with a tiger skin rug, I can just say that was my pet tiger and there's no penalty. Whereas I should have absolutely no reason to have a tiger skin rug in my, in my possession. And it would be really easy to prosecute me if I did, if it weren't for this smokescreen that's been created. Whenever you expand that market for those parts, people are always going to want, people who can afford it, are gonna want the premium product, the wild tiger. And it's a whole lot cheaper to kill a tiger in the wild than it is to raise it up until it's three or four years old and big enough to harvest for their parts. And so that is putting tremendous pressure on wild populations who are disappearing at an alarming rate and I think will be gone within the next five years if we don't stop the cub handling and phase out the private possession of these big cats. Why is it the cats though? Because they're pretty scary when they get above like above like a foot long. They get pretty scary. So it's kind of, to me, it's like, isn't there other animals that you could do that with? And, and there must be some crazy allure to it that isn't the same as it is with other animals. Because, I, I, I mean, when I, when, I, when I see it on TV, when I see them in the wild, when, when I see them on TV shows, they're, they're kind of, they're beasts. I think you actually hit the nail on the head. It is the most magnificent, most ferocious, most feared and revered animal on the planet. Animal Planet actually did a poll years ago of the world's favorite animal, and it was the tiger. Everybody thought it would be the dog, but it turned out to be the tiger. And I think it's because that animal has that reputation is why people want to touch it, something they would never be able to do in the wild. And the people who exploit the tiger, I think, see that as being the way of reaching the most people by saying, I have power over this tiger, therefore I am powerful and follow me. And that's, I think, how they lure people into their cults. That's a really good point, actually, when you say it like that. Well, you said it. <laughs> well, no, yeah, but that kind of that, that, that I have control over this, this, this wild animal that is the most powerful of the wild animals the kind of king of the jungle thing and i have that power maybe there is a bit big part of that yeah i hadn't thought of it like that okay i've got a million and one questions to ask you about stuff this afternoon so hopefully you'll you'll just you'll humor me on some things you g get yourself involved in a tv show you think it's going to be one thing it ends up being another did you enjoy the process of making the tv show because Big Cat Rescue, at the time, we had probably five years ago, we probably had close to 100 big cats. And so at the time, anytime anybody was doing any kind of a documentary, they would come to the sanctuary and film the cats. I think even Louie, when he was here, may have done that. And um, I know he's done it since 2011. But 
it was a great opportunity for them to get all of that B-roll and to find out about the issues. I mean, we were happy to tell every producer who came all about the issues because we want that message to get out there. So we have and do continue to work with all kinds of film crews right now during COVID. We can't actually have them at the sanctuary. So a lot of it's being done remotely where we're like, what would you like the cat? What would you like the film of the cat to be doing? And it's like, well, we just need pictures of their toes, you know, licking their toes. It's like, fine, we can do that. So we send them the footage of whatever they need. But, um, at, you know, the process was not anything onerous other than some of the personal questions that they were asking me in Tiger King. But I expected that because from the very beginning, the people who exploit these animals, they don't have they don't have an argument that the public will resonate with as to why they do that. There's no good reason. You know, they tell the public that it's for conservation, but if you pin them down on it, it's hurting conservation. It's not helping conservation. So anybody who asks any intelligent question would figure out very quickly that these people are just doing it for the money and for the power. And so since they have no argument, the only thing they can do is try to discredit my argument, which is that they don't belong in captivity. We should be protecting them in the wild. And the only thing they've ever been able to use against me is the fact that my husband disappeared back in 1997. And they've used that personal tragedy for years to try and cast doubt or shame or whatever on me. And I think Tiger King really picked up on that because Tiger King was trying to pitch a show that was a feud between two people. I've never spoken to Joe Exotic. I've never said anything nasty about him personally online. And if you watch Tiger King, you won't see me saying anything cruel or ugly about him. So if they couldn't get me to do that for their show, I think the only other alternative was to paint me as this, and I hate to use this word Karen, but there's like this meme of Karen being this entitled white woman who tells everybody how they should live their lives. And so by painting me as that kind of a meme, then they could have some excuse for why he did all of these horrible things to the animals without... Um, taking any responsibility for the horrific things that have happened to the animals. And so I can see why they did it and I can see why people believed what they saw because they did an excellent job of painting it that way. But the good news that has come out of this is, I mean, people where you are just, of course, think this is crazy and how could this happen? And in the U.S., when we're trying to tell lawmakers that this is happening, they're like, that can't be happening. There's no way people have 100, 200, 400 tigers in their backyard. And it's like, yes, they do. Now that people have seen Tiger King, they've actually seen, yes, they do. And so it's given us the opportunity to speak about these, um, these laws that we need to protect the big cats and have the credibility of people having seen with their own eyes that it exists. I've had my fair share of, of haters over the years being in the public eye as I've been. And when I, f if, if I go back, it's probably 2012, 2010, something like that, where I first experienced it. And I was, I was really deeply hurt by people back then writing things that were negative about me. And <clears throat> I took it to heart. I didn't see it as I do today. Today, I, I couldn't care less. I don't, I don't care at all. But it, re it personally impacted me. And my business partner, Danielle, she said to me, if I'd have ever got any of the hate, just one piece of hate that you did, Spencer, then she said, I, I, would have, it, I could have never recovered from it. And then I see someone like you, and I, I, bear in mind, I'm sitting here saying to myself, I've had my fair share of hate, but 
you've been attacked. You've been attacked like a million times more than I have in so many different ways. And I want to know how how you coped with it at first emotionally, and how you've that's evolved, and how you cope with it now. Well, it has been different because the the first time that people had accused me of doing anything to my husband was a full year after he had disappeared, and they had their reasons for doing that because of the fact that we were speaking out against animal abuse back then. And they had tried and unsuccessfully tried to take over our real estate business. And so the first time I read those things, I thought, you know, that just, it struck me to the core that people would say such things because I loved my husband and I was the only person in his life who was trying to protect him and to get him the medical attention that he needed. He was I, we never did find out what he was suffering from. I thought it was Alzheimer's. He was diagnosed as being bipolar. But it it was just so hurtful at first when people were saying that. But I could see why they were doing it. They had an agenda. But nobody paid any attention to him. So it didn't really bother me. It wasn't until 23 years later when Tiger King paints this portrait of what they say happened, that all of these people jumped on the bandwagon. And, you know, like I said, my husband and I sat there and binge watched it when it came out. And then we just sat there looking at each other and said, you know, what a missed opportunity. And then my phone started ringing and it rang every two minutes for the next three months with people just screaming obscenities at me and accusing me of all kinds of horrible things and saying they wanted to kill me, they wanted to kill my family, they wanted to kill the cats because they didn't belong in cages. And I was like, well, on that one, I agree, they don't belong in cages, but we can't just go out there and kill them either. They they really do try to stay alive. And I think as long as an animal wants to be alive, we should do what we can to give them as decent a life as we can because they can never go back to the wild if they've been raised in captivity. So. There was like this 23 year gap between my initial feeling very hurt, like you mentioned the first time it happened to you, to this, what on earth are these people thinking kind of a response that I had after Tiger King. And so it was a shock after Tiger King, but it wasn't that hurt inside. And I think probably like you've noticed, if you have been the victim of this kind of thing over the years, because there was like Before Tiger King, I think there was like maybe three or four articles that had come out. We had been in the press like thousands of times every year. But over the 23 year span, there'd been like three or four articles where people had brought up these same allegations again. And so I had a little bit of easing into Tiger King, I guess. But once you've been exposed to that over and over and over again, you do just kind of say, you know what? This is your problem. This is not my problem because this is what you think of me is not what defines me. I, the, re- the reason I asked that, and I'm, I'm not sure many people would have asked you this, it's just that after after going through the feelings and emotions that, that I went through and knowing that, you know, because you see it on TV or you see it in the press or in social media, you see, you know, whether it's Justin Bieber or other people getting hated on and stuff. I just, I just feel sad for people. I really do feel sad that they have to receive that kind of uh, uh, abuse from people that don't even know them. Um, and people think that that, it, that that they're allowed or that's right, you know, because they, you know, if anybody said that to their mum, then they'd be deeply offended and they'd probably want to go and have a conversation with that person. If anyone said that to their sister, their brother or their wife, um, 
you know, that they wouldn't want to tolerate that kind of stuff, yet they feel it's okay to be able to do it. I had a situation once that happened to me here, and somebody wrote something nasty on, on, a, on a video that I posted, and he wrote something, and, and then I, I, I just messaged back saying, are you having a bad day? Is there anything I can help you with? And uh, he, he was like, I, I've never trolled in my life. I'm really, really sorry. I'm trying to delete this right now, and I can't. I'm sat on the toilet, and I have been for the last 30 minutes. Could you please delete it? And I was like, I just went, no. You come at it from a slightly different angle as time goes by. And, you know, there was another incident where a guy said something nasty. This is a true story. Um, he, I, I, he said something nasty, saying that I didn't live where I lived. That can't be my house. And it was really, really abusive. And then one evening I went for a walk with my neighbor and we walked up the street and, this, and it was dusk. There was a guy walking towards me kind of a larger guy and he was walking towards me and he as he walked past he turned around he said are you Spencer Lodge and I thought oh the guy knows my show so yeah I'm Spencer nice to meet you he said I owe you an apology he said I was giving you abuse the other night on that stuff that you posted on your house he said uh and I didn't realize you lived here now you're walking up the street I know you do he said I drank too much whiskey I'm really sorry I shouldn't have done it (laughs) and um I really appreciated the fact that he apologized to me though I really appreciated the fact that he'd stopped to say sorry but yeah some people some people okay sorry we're digressing a little bit so hopefully hopefully this is okay with you so you you make well, a tv before show you leave that you know i think the media also plays a really important role in that because i was just shocked at how many times the media would say something after tiger king like with this whole thing with cardi b and not was it cardi b whoever it was that sang some kind of a rap song and they had some cats in the in the saw in the music video and they reached out to me and said what do you think about her having these cats in the video and I said well you know I'm really appreciative of the fact that she didn't bring any live cats onto the scene that they're obviously photoshopped in I would have preferred that she didn't do that because it makes people think that they were really in the scene and you know that was the end of it and for weeks there was like all of this media hoopla about how we were at war with each other and all of these hateful things that we were saying to each other and I don't know about for her, from her part, but I wasn't saying those things. And they were just being attributed to me because it fed the media desire for that kind of nonsense. Yeah, the, 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 you're, at, you're bang on the money with that one because the media do play such a horrific part in it. You know, I remember being accused of something back in 2012 and the newspapers called me and they called me and they asked me some questions. They said, I'm not going to comment to you on the phone. I don't know who you are. They said, well, we're going to write a story anyway. So you can either tell us what happened or we'll write a story. And I thought, you buggers, you know, that's that's not on you know i've done you know i've done nothing to you i i I shouldn't be responding to you anyway i should be responding professionally and through legal channels or whatever it may be official channels pr and whatnot but they're going to run a story anyway and when you when you take someone i don't know the worst the worst example of it all is probably princess diana and what happened to her when you think about that she's probably been the worst person affected by it but you know who did the press think they are back in the olden days they used to have integrity didn't they and then it just became what is the coronavirus is a bloody great example isn't it if you think about it now um a colleague of mine was in the UK for Christmas and she said, I was in the UK and it was such a relief to come back to Dubai because we, we don't have freedom of the press here. You can't, you can't write stuff you want to write here. You have to be, you know, making sure your facts are correct. And so in the UK, propaganda, drama. How refreshing. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. And she said, I came back to Dubai. She said, and all of a sudden it became calm again. Because all of that bombarding of information, nonsense, propaganda, you know, the, the, the stuff that's going around right now just wasn't there. And so, yeah, 
pleasant. But um, I suppose you can't get away from it nowadays because it's on your phones as opposed to in the olden days when we, in England, we would say, today's news is tomorrow's fish and chip wrapping paper. And so... <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you are very passionate about what you do and you have uh, a story and a message and you're campaigning. Do you think it's working? I do. And the reason I think that it's working is I've seen a huge shift. So like I said, for the first three months, my phone was ringing nonstop with people being hateful. And that was in addition to literally hundreds of thousands of emails and social posts and memes and all of that kind of stuff. And then it started once I was on Dancing with the Stars and people saw that there was some more depth to who I was than the <laughs> what they had seen in Tiger King. And they got to hear some of the issues as either I was talking about them or other shows were actually showing how there was so much abuse going on in these places that were exploiting animals. So I think all of that has made it worthwhile to have done it because of the fact that people are starting to get the message. And I think that will only increase as we push forward for our federal bill. And you guys, I, when I say you guys because of you being English, I mean, back in the UK, I think it was probably back in the 70s when you outlawed the kind of outrageous behavior that we still have here in the United States. And so it's just a matter of time when we're going to catch up with the rest of the world. But it's been a long, hard slog. And I don't know why you guys were able to do it so much further ahead of us. I don't know what the resistance here in the U.S. has been. I mean, you guys got rid of circuses maybe, first. Maybe, maybe we're just all scared of lions and tigers in England. And they were like, no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> Who knows? Tell me about how you collaborate with other people that are on the same mission as you. How you, how you are able to bring them together and how they, they, they support the mission with you. Have you ever seen the Vampire Diaries or heard of it? Yeah. Um, so it was a program where Ian Summerhalder was a teenage heartthrob and his uh, pro bono attorney had reached out to me asking if she could help us with a situation where there was a truck stop in Louisiana that had a tiger in a tiny cage out by the pumps and people would come there to get their gas and harass the cat. And they even had signs on the cage that said, don't throw rocks at the tiger. And it's like, if you have to put up a sign that say, don't throw rocks at the tiger, this tiger doesn't belong here. I mean, not that it did under any circumstances, but at any rate, we had been fighting that for years and he wanted to help with that. The problem was we had been the first organization that had ever actually hired an attorney to represent a tiger. And he had gone through the entire legal uh, battle. And what the parish did was they, they passed a law and then they backtracked it to allow the guy that had the tiger to keep the tiger. So there was nothing that we could do on that front. But I said, there is something that we can do. And the whole thing is around saving the tiger in the wild. And so with his permission and his pro bono attorney, we got together with a whole bunch of groups. I'd say probably a dozen different groups in D.C., to come together and figure out what is the real underlying issue and how can we end it as far as the big cat crisis goes. And so these were our biggest organizations, the Humane Society of the United States, the World Wildlife Fund, Born Free, the International Fund for Animal Welfare, um, Animal Welfare Institute, 
none of these people had ever played together <laughs> because you've got these huge egos <laughs> that can't play together. But we all came and we sat around the table and we all committed that we would sit there at that table until we figured out what the real underlying problem was and how all of us were going to pitch in to help. And so we went one by one around the room, everybody saying what they thought the underlying program problem was. And I was the next to the last person. <clears throat> and I said, I thought it was the cub handling because all of the other things that were bothersome, tigers in, um, in circus acts, tigers in backyards, tigers in the illegal trade, they all start out as cubs and they were monetizing those cubs to such an extent that it didn't even matter if they got the money out of them on the other end. So if we just stopped the cub petting, we could stop this. And it came at a good time because a girl had just been killed by a tiger that she had been pos posing with. And so um, what we all agreed to do that day, and this was in 2011, was right when Louis Theroux's piece came out, it turned out. But um, we all decided that we would meet every Thursday at four o'clock. And my husband has led that call every Thursday since four o'clock to make sure that we're staying on target. And what we came up with that day was a three-pronged approach. Back then, there was something called the um, generic tiger loophole. So it used to be you had to track whether or not you were breeding and selling tigers. And there were so many people who were selling these crossbred tigers because they were trying to inbreed and do the cub petting and the white tiger and all of that that our U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said, if it's not a purebred tiger, it's not a tiger. Well, that was a stupid thing to do. And so it just opened the floodgates for people to be breeding tigers. And they had done that in the 80s. So what we wanted to do was close that loophole and say, if it's a tiger, it's a tiger. And then it, in the meanwhile, lions ended up on the endangered species list. So they were protected too. The second prong of the approach was to go to the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They monitor what's called the Animal Welfare Act, which was written in the 70s, so it's way outdated, but at least it gives some measure of protection to the cats. And they were not enforcing that act, certainly not when it came to the cub handling, because ripping a cub away from its mother as soon as it's born, keeping it on a diet that you can't replicate, you can't go to the store and buy tiger milk, um, using it as a pay-to-play prop where people are dropping these cubs, breaking their limbs, you know, handling them around. They often would die from the handling. It was so rough. And all of that is considered a take under the Endangered Species Act. And so we felt like if the Animal Welfare Act actually enforced their laws, that it would fix that. They still have not responded to our petition, which was in 2012. And it wasn't like a handwritten petition where you have people sign it. It was like a 70-page, well-documented, 13 big cat vets all signing on to it saying, this is abuse of tigers. And so they've ignored that to date. But the third prong was a federal bill that would ban the cub handling and uh, private possession. So that's where we are with that. We've introduced it every two years, and we keep reintroducing it. But every year, we gain more momentum. And this past year, we actually passed in the House with a two-thirds vote. And so if it, we had had a little bit more time in the year, we, I think we could have gotten through the Senate. We had to reintroduce in January, but we are just steamrolling along on that. So I really think that that federal law will pass this year. So the only thing left then will get, be getting USDA to actually enforce the rules that they do have. So that has been the, the long answer to your story of how we have been progressing on this. Is there, I know that you have a passion for these animals, but I'm sure being a, being a cat lover, you're definitely an animal lover, period. 
Do, is there is there anything close to what goes on with the cats in America with other animals? Yes. Um, all of these, well, not all, but the vast majority of the places that offer cub handling with lions and tigers also do it with chimps and orangutans and um, spider monkeys and celibus apes, all kinds of primates, non-human primates. And so my belief is that once the big cat Public Safety Act passes, it will become a model for all of those people using primates and bears and wolves and other apex predators. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, primates, that's a good one. Okay, so how good are you? How good were you at dancing before you went on Dancing with the Stars? How give it, give it, how, mark out of 10 for how good you were. In my family, it was considered a sin to dance, so I had never danced a step in my life. And I told them that when they invited me onto the show, I said, you know, it's not just that I'm not a good dancer, it's that I have never danced. And they said, it's no problem. You know, these, um, these dance pros are really pros. He's just gonna sling you around out there on the dance floor. You probably won't even be aware of your feet touching the ground. Well, <laughs> it was a whole lot harder than that. And I proved unequivocally that you cannot teach an old dog to dance. <laughs> So, so get, get, tell us, how much training did you have to do? Unfortunately, due to COVID and all of the um, things that I was asking them to do to protect me, because my husband's over 70 and he's high risk. My daughter has asthma, so she's very high risk. And she doesn't live with us, but we work together. So I didn't want to be bringing COVID home to my family. And so there was a lot of stuff we had to do to make that work for me to even be able to go out to Hollywood. But by the time we did that, then I only had, I think... A couple of weeks maybe three weeks to train before the first dance and it was excruciating and we were only getting like three hours of dance time in the dance halls because of covid they had to like get you out of the dance hall then they had to completely sterilize it for the next person so they had put me up in this really big apartment beautiful apartment and the first thing I did was, it was like, all right, I need to be dancing every minute that I can be awake. And so I moved all of the furniture into one of the bedrooms in the apartment. It had a wooden floor. And then every day when I would go in with Pasha, I would ask him to do my moves for me. And I would film my moves that I had to do with him doing it. And then I would take it home, play it on the TV, and I would dance those moves until I just could not stand up any longer. And then next day would be the same thing. And so... Initially, we had like three weeks to practice for the first dance, and then we only had um, two weeks to practice for the second dance because we started it a little bit before the first dance actually took place. And by the last one, we didn't have but five days to learn the dance routine. And I just, I don't see in 3D that way, I guess, the way maybe a lot of people can, but I would, I, I just felt so bad for Pasha. And I would tell him, you know, I'm just so sorry. I am not trying to screw with you. I just can't do this i can't remember these steps well going from zero like zero to having to learn how to dance and learn those steps i mean i've watched some stuff online with you doing it i think you were blooming good considering you never danced before i mean you must have been proud of yourself surely oh i was i was so proud that i just didn't fall and one of the things that i was most uh proud of when they were talking about me afterwards how they'd give you the review they said that even though I did a lousy job of it, I got all the steps right. And for me, it was like, yes, I nailed those steps. <laughs> <laughs> and did you, did you see that as an opportunity to, to 
to get yourself more in the public eye, to be able to share your story in more detail? Or was there a part of you that secretly thought, this might be a bit of fun, I might enjoy this? There was no part of me that thought that was going to be fun because I don't do fun. I don't, I don't take vacations. I work seven days a week. I've done that since I was 15 years old. And I just don't see the joy in recreational types of things. Um, I get my joy out of accomplishments, out of, you know, getting those state laws passed and getting animals out of abusive situations. That's where I get joy. But I did see this as being a huge opportunity because so many people apparently have heard of Dancing with the Stars. And in talking with Nina Katz, the uh, producer for the show, she said that they would give me all kinds of media attention on the issues that I wanted to talk about, that I could do the little segments that they do in the show. I could talk about the cats there. Um, they offered to have all of the songs be cat themed, all of the costumes, the people in costuming were so wonderful. They said I was the most fun person they ever had to dress because they were a little bit concerned that, you know, I was this nasty 50 person. And so they were like tippy going around with, would it be okay if we do this with your dress? And I'm like, I don't care how you guys dress me, just have a blast. As long as there's no fur, feathers or leathers, I am all in. And they said that that was the most, you know, carte blanche uh, that they've ever been offered in doing a person's wardrobe. So they had a ball with it and they did a great job. That's just such a fantastic experience to have gone through. That's so funny, knowing knowing really what was going on in the background because, yeah, you hear, you hear a bit about it, but you don't know. So thanks, thank you for giving me that from the horse's mouth. Now, for all the listeners right now, I just want them to know that I've never been given so many questions or expected questions to ask for any interview ever. And wow. if, if I am um, ever given questions, then I generally start the interview. And as Alicia will confirm, I start the interview. And the first thing I do is I tear everything up on the interview. And I say, we're not going to do that. We're going to do what I do. But the reason, and, and I understand the reason why you sent so many questions across was because of the kind of irritating, annoying, repetitive questions that you must have had over and over again over the years to, to being interviewed. And I want to, I want to res respect that very much so by having the kind of conversation we're having tonight. But I, I, I do want to cover a couple of other things just before we get to the end. And I just want to make sure, because there's an audience out there that, that don't know you, and there's also an audience out there that don't get America. And so, <laughs> well, with good reason, probably. <laughs> I don't get American. <laughs> and and I have to I have to be careful because the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom is is known to be Boris Johnson is known to be a bit of a bumbling buffoon himself. In the, so the press says, I'm sure he's a very bright guy. So. Let, let's just talk, first of all, let's just talk quickly about America, okay? Uh, obviously, um, you've had Donald Trump in charge of your country for the last four years. Um, uh, it's, it's become a very split and divided nation with the supporters and, and the people that are against. And it's, it's been, in what only we can see through the TV cameras, obviously, it has been, it's been very disappointing, to be honest with you. you know, the United States is this place that's on a pedestal, you know, the, this place that leads the world. And over the last four years, we've started to see the, the cracks almost uh, and how different it is. Now, 
if you go to America, you're on the East Coast or the West Coast from, from, you know, from New York or Boston all the way down to Florida, or if you go, you know, San Diego all the way up to San Francisco and, and Seattle and stuff, you see a different America to the America you see when you go into the center part of it. Is, is, is the country divided in your opinion? And was Donald Trump a really bad decision? The country is divided. And I really don't understand why. I mean, we all have to be here together and we all have to get things done. And why we choose to be so obstructionist in our Congress to getting anything done. Just, it's like biting your nose off to spite your face. I, I don't understand that. And as far as the last four years, I, I was a Republican. I did not vote for Donald Trump, even though he was the Republican nominee, because I just did not think that was the kind of person who should be running a, a country, um, much less a family. And I couldn't believe at the time that he was elected. I think most people in my position anyway, felt like that couldn't possibly happen. And yet it did. And it was just shocking to me that it has been so divisive over the years. This is my husband, Howard. This conversation Hi. sounds much too serious. So I thought I'd pop in here and do the photo bomb and <laughs> lighten it up. So let me, let me answer that question this way. If I can get along with her, Republicans and Democrats should be able to get along. There's your answer. <laughs> and he can't hear what you're saying because I have the I can't hear on. What you say. But if you want to do a show on life with Carol, you let me know. <laughs> that would be a show that would get a lot of attention. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, Howard. <laughs> Damn it. That's the first that's the first podcast bombing we've had. <laughs> well said, Howard. As 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 you said, you should all be able to get on with each other, but you can't. But you didn't vote for Donald yourself. You couldn't understand why he, he got elected. But do you think now? Do you think now everyone's gonna try and get on with each other? Or do you think do you think that divide is quite fierce now and, and people are kind of digging their heels in and getting stubborn and saying, No, we're one way and you are the other? When I saw what happened on January 6th with people who were aligning themselves to this person rather than to our constitution and our ideals, I that very same day, I changed my party affiliation to non-affiliated because I could not be associated with people who would do that to their country. And I felt like all Republicans were going to be painted with that same broad brush of that core group of insurgents that he had following him. As far as going forward, I'm really hopeful that Biden can bring that kind of cooperative spirit. His manner seems to be such that he wants to kind of tone down all of the rhetoric and get people to work with each other. And in his inaugural address, when he was swearing in people, he was um, saying, you know, I'm not going to tolerate you being nasty with each other. And I thought, thank God, there's an adult back in the White House. So I, I'm really hopeful. I know there will be conflict, because there's always conflict. But I, I'm really hopeful that we are on to better things. 
Okay, a couple more questions and then we'll be done and let you get on with the rest of your day. Um, how has coronavirus and COVID affected the, the sanctuary, the, 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 the work that you do um, practically uh, and, and the animals? Yeah, um, on March the 15th, we locked our doors to visitors and that meant it would cost us about a million dollars a year of our revenue. We operate on about three and a half to four million dollars revenue, and so that was a really big chunk of what we had anticipated coming in. Our donors have been amazing in stepping up, and I've been doing stuff like you saw with Dancing with the Stars and the cameos and anything I can do to try and offset that loss of income. Five days later, Tiger King came out, so we had like this double hit. <laughs> I'm wondering would people ever donate to us after seeing us portrayed that way? But it turned out not only did our current donors stay with us, we actually brought on more donors, so that was good. But as coronavirus continues to just rage out of control with no end in sight until possibly next fall, I am really concerned about our ability to survive that. We have put away enough money for the cats in our care. We set up an endowment fund. My husband actually was insistent on that back when we didn't even have the money to do it. He was making us put aside money. And so if we did have to close our doors entirely and there wasn't another donation coming in, we could get rid of all of our staff and take care of the cats we have until they die of old age. But we would have to stop all of our mission work, which is trying to end the problem at its root. <clears throat> and we also donate $100,000 a year to our, um, conservation projects in the wild. So for fishing cats and black-footed cats and rusty-spotted cats and campus cats and all of these different kinds of cats people don't even know exist because they don't get any attention or any of the funding, those are the cats that we try to help in the wild. So it would cost us being able to do any of that it's, as COVID gets worse. I'm very hopeful that the vaccine will be effective and we can start getting back to some sense of normality in, in the fall. But I think it's going to be several years of really having to tighten our belts. And how many, how many cats have you got? We have 52 exotic cats currently. And what's happened over the years, at our peak, we had 200. But when I met Howie in 2002, one of the things we decided to do was we can't rescue our way out of this. And back then we were having to turn away over 300 cats a year. But, um, and that number was doubling every other year. And so that's why we knew we had to change the laws so that these cats weren't being dumped into the flow. We had to turn off the spigots first before you could mop up the floor. And so we decided not to be taking in any more cats than, you know, if a cat died, we might bring in a new one, but we weren't taking in more cats and we were devoting our resources to actually ending the problem. So as we have done rescues over the past few years, we always take the oldest and the sickest because we have an on-site hospital and a great team of vets and vet care um, assistants. And so we can give them the care that they can't get at other sanctuaries that aren't as well funded. So, um, because of that strategy, a lot of our cats, we probably lose 12 cats a year due to old age. And when I say old age, they're in their late teens and early twenties. At zoos, when they die of old age, they're dying at 10 and 12. So they're living twice as long with us and having really healthy lives because of the peaceful environment and the good food and the good vet care. But still, they are passing on. And our intention is to completely wind all of this down. So Right now, there's some big rescues that are in the news. As you guys may have seen, we took over the GW Zoo where Joe Exotic was. 
his partner took all but 11 of the animals down to, well, all but three tigers, two lions, and 11 wolves he took, and a couple of bears, I think. Um, so we sent those out to a sanctuary in Colorado, and we work with a whole group of sanctuaries that are accredited by the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. So whenever there is a rescue need, we all get together and say, who's got cage space, who needs help transporting, and we work together to make sure cats end up in spaces. So there's a couple of big ones right now that may go under. Um, Jeff Lowe is now moved all of the animals down to Thackerville, and the government has said that he has to give up all of the cubs and all of the mothers because of malnutrition. Those cats just w went out to the same guy in Colorado, but there's still probably 70 cats that will need to be rescued out of there very shortly, I think. Probably another 50 over at Antle's place that I expect will be needing rescue soon. So we may end up having to take in some more animals during that, but so, at least those numbers aren't growing. There's so many, isn't there? Yeah. It's just like, goodness me. All right. Have you enjoyed spending some time with me today? I have. You have been just delightful. And say hello uh, to your mother for me. <laughs> I will indeed. I will indeed. Carol, thank you so much for taking time to come and talk to us. I know that uh, you get a million requests for interviews, and I really do appreciate you taking the time to, to come and share your stories. And, and do you know what? You're smashing you are. You're a charming lady, and it's, it's really lovely to get to know someone so sweet as you. So thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, Carol Baskin. Well, there you go. Another episode of the podcast with the awesome Carol Baskin. I know 60 million people around the world have watched that. So if you enjoyed it, then you will know exactly who she is and you'll know the amount of hate that she got and the attacks that she got and the abuse that she got. But, you know, she's quite charming, isn't she? She's quite a nice lady. And somebody who's on a mission. And I like people that are on a mission. They know where they're going. They're trying to achieve something with their life. And her mission is clearly these cats. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoyed these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes, do me a favor, give me a five-star rating. I'd really appreciate it. There's a reason for it, let me tell you. And if it's SoundCloud, Spotify or other podcast app, please leave me a recommendation. The way it works is like, this 
If you leave me a five-star rating or a recommendation, the podcast apps then send this content out to a bigger audience. And the more people that see it, means that more people get to enjoy it and experience these fantastic guests that we've got the great privilege of interviewing on the show. So please do that for me and for everybody else that could get benefit out of this. Take care and we'll see you on the next episode.